It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, keeping track of the trash floating around our planet. Plus the legacy of a physicist's perspective on life. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Shamini Bundell. Our planet is surrounded by human-made objects. Ever since the very first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1 in 1957, humans have been launching various things into orbit. These days, we rely on satellites for GPS, television, weather forecasts, credit card payments, and of course, a lot of the environmental and astronomical science that we report on in this very podcast. But things aren't as easy for modern satellites as they were when Sputnik went up. There are now nearly 2,000 active satellites in orbit, and they have a major problem to contend with. Space junk. Earth's orbit is full of artificial debris. There's defunct satellites, abandoned launch vehicle stages, fragments from explosions, and things that have just gotten lost, including a toolkit that an astronaut from the International Space Station misplaced and which ended up floating off by itself to join the growing collection of clutter far above our heads. Carolyn Free, an aerospace engineer at Purdue University in the US, is working on ways to track space debris. I asked her, How much is actually up there? There are around 18,000 objects that are currently catalogued. But if we say, okay, how many objects are there out in total going down to centimeter size, then we are talking more about 100,000 to 300,000 objects. Given that these objects are all very small and Earth is quite big and there's, you know, quite a lot of space up there, does that actually pose a practical problem? Is there not sort of plenty of room for our satellites to steer around them? (laughs) Um, It is very true that there is a lot of space. So in an earthly perception, it's not packed in that sense. What makes the problem is that these objects are fast, right? Like several kilometers per second. And they are not all kind of nicely aligned, but they are in different orbits that cross each other. And that means things are running into each other with 
relative velocities that can have several kilometres per second. So we, we've got a whole bunch of bits of rubbish or whatever we've got floating around up there and it's all potentially damaging for our active satellites. Um, what's the main kind of thing we're doing at the moment to counter this problem? So the only way to get independent information on the objects is observation. So there are several sensor networks. We try to keep track of all those objects, get a precise orbit, get a good representation of the uncertainty and make collision warnings. At the moment, collision warnings are put out through the U.S. Air Force and I would say the orbits are not precise enough to make that very efficient. So collision warnings are important because potentially then an active satellite could be manoeuvred out of the way if the, the predictions are accurate. Um, so what are you working on to, to make these predictions more accurate? So one part I'm working on is how can we find out more about the object? So I'm looking at uh, brightness measurements over time. Can we use that to um, find shape, attitude, other characteristic of the object that directly couple back to the orbit through drag or solar radiation pressure? And, and you, you mentioned attitude, which is um, its it sort of orientation and, and how it's rotating as it orbits. But how easy is it to, to tell all of that from down here? So for most of the objects, we're not getting a resolved image where we see any details of the object. So that means we just get one bright spot, like you see the stars in the night sky. So how on earth can you tell from, from a little dot what, what, it, what it is and, and what it's made of? So for the materials, we can measure in different wavelengths. We measure in different wave bands the reflection, then we know what type of materials have been sent up, and then maybe we can do a comparison. Shape or attitude motion, if you measure brightness over time, if we know one of the parts, if we know shape, we can more easily solve for attitude. If we know the attitude, we can more easily solve for the shape. But all of this is more like detective work. Like you get clues and then maybe if you put all clues together, it gives you an educated guess. And thinking about all these objects as, as kind of space junk, like we've been littering up our orbit, um, I think most people's first reaction would be like, well, we better, we better clean it up then. That's what we do with, with rubbish and litter here on Earth. Can't we do that in space? The, the idea is, is out there. There have been studies about bringing up satellites to clean the space that's feasible maybe for a couple of big objects but we will not clean up everything and we also have to think that's very expensive to do that we have to have a dedicated mission to clean five objects so for the meantime you're, you're focusing more on tracking rather than tidying so to to minimize the amount of debris that's added and, and keep track of what's already up there and do you think at some point we could reach a stage where we actually know where everything is at any given point of time, kind of like a like an air traffic control system, but for space? In order to make that work, we need better sensors and better algorithms. We also would need international agreements. At the moment, it's, it's pretty much like on the oceans that when you're in the midst of the ocean, whose legal responsibility is it, right? And that's pretty much how, how space is. So even though collision messages are put out, and I think we need a lot more work on those to make them more reliable, to make them better. We're also lacking a lot of legislation, and we have no tool to, to enforce things. 
But right now, the collision warning systems we have in place are, are doing a pretty good job. We're avoiding um, sort of big collisions. There's still, you know, maybe damage from from smaller bits of debris, and there's still costs of having to sort of manoeuvre around the way of stuff. But how urgently do we need to improve our systems? We are not in a position where we can afford doing business as usual. There are many objects we don't know about. The collision warning system that we have at the moment is insufficient. The, the, the space environment, in terms of how we're utilizing it, is rapidly changing, making the problem worse, and um, we cannot just go on the way we have. That was Carolyn Free of Purdue University. She's been interviewed, along with other people working on the space junk problem, for a feature in Nature this week, which you can find at nature.com forward slash news. Still to come in the news chat, testing out a powerful mini accelerator and a new plan for open access. But now it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Richard Hudson. Graphene is a marvellous material. It's formed of carbon sheets just a single atom thick and has unique conductive and physical properties. Despite its extraordinary qualities, researchers have now found that it can be produced in an ordinary microwave. A tube of silicon and silicon dioxide were heated in a microwave to form a 700 degrees Celsius charged gas. Adding methane to the mix led to some of the methane's carbons forming graphene. These graphene scraps grew into sheets in the same way that snowflakes form. The graphene snow floated down and was collected and used to make a sensor. Read more in Advanced Materials. Now, a story with a twist, and this one's a real gut-wrencher. Yes, it's about how our intestines develop their twisted shape. Researchers looked at the guts of developing chick and mouse embryos. They found that connective tissue gets decorated with amino acid chains only on the right-hand side of the gut. This causes the right-hand side to expand substantially compared to the left, leading to the gut's crucial counterclockwise turn. For a long time, a protein on the left side was thought to be the key player. Turn to that study in Developmental Cell. Sharmini, if I say the name Schrodinger to you, what is the first thing that pops into your head? Uh, a dead cat. Oh, or an alive cat. One of the two. Yeah, well, either way, that is the answer that I'm looking for. This dead slash alive cat is, in fact, a famous thought experiment Erwin Schrodinger used to draw attention to the bizarre implications of quantum mechanics. But this thought experiment was just the tip of the Schrodinger quantum iceberg. There's also the Schrodinger equation, which describes the fundamental behaviour of quantum systems. And in 1933, Schrodinger received a Nobel Prize for his work on quantum mechanics. But Schrodinger was also interested in life. And no, not just the life of cats. Ten years after winning the Nobel Prize and 75 years ago this year, Schrodinger delivered a lecture series that brought physics and biology a bit closer together. Writer Phil Ball has been discussing this series in Nature's Books and Arts section and explains that the story started in Dublin in Ireland. 
Well, Schrodinger himself ended up in Dublin because he was essentially an exile fleeing from the Nazi occupation of Austria, his home country. So there he was in 1943, and he was required to give some public lectures. And he chose, probably to uh, the surprise of some, to talk not about quantum physics, but about biology. These biology lectures from a physicist were very well attended. The following year, they were published as a book. The title of both was What is Life? Safe to say then that Schrodinger wasn't interested in tackling easy questions. Schrodinger used the series to cast a physicist's eye over some of the core concepts of modern biology. His key question was, what is it about life that makes it seem to be able to evade the second law of thermodynamics, the, this notion that things eventually end up in chaos and dissolution and randomness. Um, so that was his key theme. And there were two aspects of that question that emerge in his lectures. And the first one that he spent most time on is how it is that organisms are able to stably inherit traits from their the parent organisms, how they're passed down from generation to generation. Because if those traits are encoded in genes at the molecular level, physics tells you that they ought to be it's kind of submerged by the randomness, the, the chaotic motions that exist at that level. But then he asked, well, even if we understand that process of inheritance, how do those instructions that are encoded in the genes act out to guide the development of an organism. And there, he, he really didn't make much progress, but he made a very clear statement of that problem. And I think, you know, often that's a more valuable thing to do in science, to clearly articulate the problem. In What is Life, Schrodinger has a lot of thoughts about genes and gene encoding molecules. But this was back in 1943, when it was still unclear what a gene actually was. At the time, Schrödinger and others thought that these molecules would probably be proteins. Of course, we now know genes are encoded in DNA, but while Schrödinger wasn't right on this one, he honed thoughts on how these molecules could be used to pass information from generation to generation. What he said was that there must be something about these molecules that encode genes that remains stable. And he talked of the genes as being something like what he called an aperiodic crystal. And what he meant by that was it has a particular arrangement of atoms. So it's non-random, but it remains fixed. And somehow it encodes the information that genes carry and pass between generations. It wasn't until 10 years later that Watson and Crick published their description of the double helical structure of DNA. But Schrodinger's description of a non-random code capable of storing information was inspiring to many, including Watson and Crick, who both said that what is life motivated their work on genetics. But Schrodinger's what is life wasn't without its critics. There was some grumbling and some said the biology in the book was actually a little bit out of date. And also the, his ideas about there being some kind of code that was somehow inscripted in, in molecules 
there there have been one or two biologists who had made similar suggestions and one or two of whom were a little bit miffed that they or their colleagues weren't recognised. There was also grumbling later on um, in the 1980s. Max Perutz, who was one of the key people in understanding the structure of proteins, uh, he, he rather dismissively said about the book that what was original in it wasn't particularly valuable and what was particularly valuable in it wasn't particularly original. But this is the response from some of the biologists at the time. 75 years on, we have a wealth of additional understanding of life and its interplay with physics. So what is the legacy of what is life today? Here's Phil's take. In retrospect, its value wasn't so much what Schrodinger said, but uh, the way he said it, um, that he was able to bring disciplines together. He really highlighted the value of different disciplines talking to one another. I also think that in where Schrodinger was going, it's possible to see a sort of foreshadowing of some important themes that have emerged today, even if Schrodinger himself didn't recognise them. This question of information and what role information plays in biology is absolutely central. And it isn't as simple as saying, well, all the information is in the genes. Um, because it clearly isn't. For example, in terms of how genes are turned on and off, the science of epigenetics, by their environment and by what cells tell each other to do. You know, this is really one of the themes at the forefront of understanding biology today. So, you know, I think I see that as one of his key legacies, that we need to understand living organisms as self-organized systems that involve an interaction between information they contain and information that they receive from the environment. That was writer Phil Ball. You can read his retrospective of What is Life over nature.com forward slash books hyphen culture. Thanks to Benjamin Thompson for producing that interview. Now it's time for the news chat and I'm joined in the studio by Flora Graham. Hi, Flora. Hello. So Flora is editor of the Nature Briefing and we've got some interesting stories mentioned in the briefing that we're going to chat about. Um, And the first one is all about the move towards open access science. That's right. This is a very big move from European funding agencies. These are 11 funding agencies from all across Europe, including France, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands and others. And they have come up with a pledge, which means that all scientists that receive funding from any of these agencies must publish their work in an open access model. That means those papers are freely available to read immediately upon publication and released under a very liberal open license. So if a scientist wants the money, they have to sign up to this open access plan. Exactly. If they want money from these particular funding agencies, and the news is that there probably will be more funding agencies signing up to it in the future as well. So we've we've already got open access journals and we do hear about it a lot. And there are funders that require science that they funded to be published in open access journals. What what makes this particular announcement different? Absolutely. Well, this is taking it to the next level. This represents uh, 7.6 billion euros in funding across Europe. And the idea is that this will be the initial step of what possibly could become a European Union-wide initiative, although we're not at that point yet. But people have been have been trying to push open access. Has it not been progressing as, as fast as people would like? That's exactly what people are saying. Robert Jan Smits, who's the European Commission's special envoy, who's really pushed this forward, he feels that this is just not happening fast enough. 
And the consensus among a lot of people in the open access community is things like hybrid journals, which are a mix of paywall and unpaywalled, and things like that are moving things forward. But this considering how quickly it's going to come into effect, is going to be a massive step change. And and just to, to go over the, the basics again, so if the journal isn't charging people to view the papers, uh, who is paying for these papers to be published? Good question. So the researchers or the funding body or the taxpayer, depending on how the, the, the research is being funded, would be the one who pays. So that raises the question... Uh, what does this mean for the business model of publishers? Um, how much are these funding bodies actually willing to pay to get their papers published? Um, according to the plan, there will be a cap on the amount that the agencies are willing to pay, but they haven't disclosed what that cap's going to be. Um, some publishers who unsurprisingly have not re- reacted well to this plan have brought up the issue that if this type of thing goes global and science, science is a global endeavor, how will people in developing nations, for example, pay the kinds of fees that people in the developed nations are able to pay in order to get into the top journals? And and so is there a, a divide in the scientific community in terms of who thinks this is a great idea, open access for all and, and, and people who are more skeptical? This plan would prevent these funded researchers from publishing in science and nature, for example. So some of the highest impact journals, some of the most prestigious journals will no longer be open to people who take funding from these agencies. I think there is, broadly speaking, a lot of support for open access publication. But of course, that doesn't necessarily speak to every single reason why someone might choose one journal over another. But is the alternative not that maybe the journals would be forced to change their policies? Well, it's no doubt that this will affect journals. The question is, how will the journals respond and how will the companies respond? Because this plan does not lay out any business model for publishers to follow. The argument is that publishers should, can charge for the services they provide in a different way. So they're they're actually asking the funders to pay rather than the readers. But there's really a big question mark over whether that will support scientific publishing as we know it. And when is this plan from these um, these funders who have signed up to this agreement, when is it being implemented? Well, it should come into force in 2020, so not long now. And so we could be seeing big changes just within a couple of years. Absolutely. This is right around the corner. And I think everything in publishing right now is definitely changing. And this will cause even more changes to come even more quickly, especially in Europe. Well, we'll be interested to uh, see how that goes. Uh, The next topic is um, a new experiment at CERN, um, famous for being a giant circular particle accelerator. Um, But this is a slightly different and new kind of particle accelerator. Exactly. So uh, the problem with a giant particle accelerator is it's huge and expensive. So what researchers at CERN are trying to do is prove that a new type of electron accelerator, which can be much smaller and cheaper, actually works. And they have successfully proven that they can accelerate electrons by kind of surfing them on the wake of protons. And this is uh, this could mean that you need a lot less energy and, of course, a lot less money in order to do some high-energy particle physics experiments. It sounds kind of too good to be true. It's cheaper, it's easier. Why has no one thought of this before? Well, actually, this idea has been around for a while. But, of course, 
you know, I say cheaper and easier, but that doesn't mean that you can knock this out out of cereal boxes and tape. Uh, it's still a major experiment. And just showing that the theory and the concept and the engineering pans out uh, in re- in the real world is, is a big step forward. Now, this doesn't mean they have a working accelerator that they can start using for experiments tomorrow. What this means is they successfully created a coherent beam of electrons. So it works in principle successfully, but we're still far from running day-to-day experiments on this type of equipment. Thank you, Flora. To read all the latest news from the world of science, head over to nature.com forward slash news. And for a daily update from Flora in your inbox, make sure to sign up to The Nature Briefing. That's all for this week, but tune in next time for even more of the latest science news. Until then, I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.